I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Just about a year ago, I was on a walk by the river with my friend Gretchen Blyler, and she suggested that she wanted to introduce me to an old friend of hers, Ricky Gates. We were talking about being an artist and being an athlete and the practice of both and where they might intersect. She was right. Ricky is incredible. That day, he inspired me with his stories and his practice and even a challenge to go on a hundred mile hut run hut with him and a group of artists and a group of athletes. We haven't made that happen yet because honestly, it's pretty intimidating to me, but if it does work out, you'll hear about it here. I think you're really gonna be interested in this episode. We'll get to it in just a minute. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else. And I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y. K-L-E-E dot com backslash Heidi, and they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended for each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co, which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co. worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co. can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website, www.bestincoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly, there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. 
Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestandcoaspen.com. That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O-A-S-P-E-N.com. And mention that you heard about Best & Co. on my podcast to receive the special discount. Ricky Gates has been described as a conceptual runner, combining the practice of endurance running with the artistic mediums of photography and writing. After nearly a decade competing on a national and international mountain, trail, and ultra running circuit, he took his love for ultra endurance, storytelling, and photography to his project-based runs that have included a run across America, every single street in San Francisco, and currently the 50 classic trails of North America. His debut book, Cross Country, invites the reader along on his 3,700-mile journey across the United States. He ran unassisted, and he tells this story through over 200 photographs, stories of individuals, and ultimately the innermost depths of his own mind. This was released this spring, and Transamericana, a feature-length film on this journey, is being premiered today. It will be widely released later this month. He and I discuss forced meditation, the poetry of the untaken URL, running to find a clean and safe mental state, why there is never too much, and how it is a luxury to suffer. Ricky, good morning. Good morning. How are you, Heidi? Great. Where are you as we are talking today? I am uh, sitting on my meditation pillow in my 1974 Volkswagen bus in the backyard of our house in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I've found that this is the the quietest place uh, that I can get away to um, and not be disturbed. So um, that's, that's where I am. It is getting a little bit hot in here. I'm doing a little sweat session as well, but, uh, uh, that, that goes with the, uh, with, with the location, I suppose. What color is your meditation cushion? It is black, uh, on top of a green meditation cushion. Uh, but most importantly, the Volkswagen bus is orange. <laughs> that was my next question. <laughs> I was taken by the fact that you described the temperature in, in the van and the fact that it's, you know, a little sweat lodgy like, and in thinking about you and a lot of your accomplishments, I was thinking about the level of comfort that you must have with at least physical discomfort and potentially some kind of mental discomfort as well. And wondered if, you might talk a little bit about that. Uh, Totally. Um, So it's something that I I don't necessarily think that I was born with or that any of us are born with uh, an appreciation uh, or simply being okay with being uncomfortable. Um, I think that for me personally, it has uh, developed over the years. Um, But uh, just in knowing 
and telling myself that pretty much everything in life, actually everything in life, including life itself, is temporary, um, kind of allows me to to be a better athlete and and a better person in a way. Um, and of course, this is something that I have to remind myself of on a daily basis. Um, but uh, for the sake of a, a one-hour uh, podcast interview, it's easy for me to be here uh, sweating a little bit uh, in a quiet place, knowing that uh, that even this is temporary. Um, and to um, with it being temporary, uh, appreciate it and uh, and allow it to allow it to pass and and to take it for what it is. Hmm. Super interesting. When you're thinking about the idea of, of temporality and the idea that things will pass, do, do you think about where you are in that process? I, I mean, do you think so it's just, it's, it's something that I've actually thought a lot about too, but I haven't, really thought about it in terms of like these really long durations and sure an hour, like no problem. And and you know what that is, but some of the things that you've done, you, you might have a sense of how long they might take, but you know, there's a lot of variability to it. And does, does that kind of, does the length come into how you think about it? I suppose that it does uh, a little bit. Uh, so when when things last longer than an hour or a half a day or a full day, um, that's kind of when you have to get a little bit more tricky, shall I say, in uh, in convincing yourself that uh, that what you're doing is 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 still temporary. Um, and I think at that point, that's kind of when I go into this uh, kind of a mindset of um, you know, as much as this sucks. Um, and I'm not talking about sitting in my van right now, but, uh, perhaps other endurance feats that I've gone through in the past, um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a luxury to, to be able to suffer. Um, it's a luxury to be out on, on highway 50, pushing a baby jogger along through the desert. Um, you know, you probably couldn't pay most human beings to, uh, to run across the great basin. Um, in the middle of July, uh, as I have done in the past. Um, but when you're in that situation, um, you just kind of realize like all of the elements that have come together to allow for that moment to happen is really quite special um, for me personally um, to be in a life situation where I don't have necessarily anyone depending on me at that moment, um, that I've spent years of my life, uh, running and training to be able to, to do 30, 50 miles a day for, for days on end, um, to have the kindness of strangers driving by and making sure that I've got water and food. Um, all of these things, if, if you can just kind of look at them in a different light, you realize that it's not, necessarily suffering that it's a luxury that you're even able to do it in the first place that's such a beautiful framing device and the fact that you started off by saying it's a luxury to suffer which is such a provocative thought 
but it's true in this really profound way because it is then about how we allow ourselves to think about things and I know and I know you do too how powerful the mind is and that it's a tool that can be used for you know both positive and negative structures and thinking and self-talk and then that you circle back on the idea that it's actually not really suffering. It's just kind of being. Totally. It's just kind of being. And, and uh, I think that you can speak to this. I think most of us, if we look at this analytically, um, can speak to this, that it's really um, like without suffering, we don't really have the ability to grow as human beings. And so if we can um, either appreciate our moments of suffering or go the next step and put ourselves into those moments of suffering. That's actually when we do the most growth as, as a human being. And, uh, you know, it's generally easier said than done. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not about to, uh, go pack a baby stroller and go jog across the great basin again tomorrow. Um, but I do always look for, other ways to challenge myself and push myself in a way that I haven't done before in a way that I know can and should provide me with an immense amount of personal growth. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of enough and what is enough. And I'd love to have you speak to that, but I'd also love your thoughts on the idea of like how much is too much, right? Where's the balance between like what is enough and also like when is or what is too much? Oh, I don't know if you're asking the right person. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, so much of, of where I've been in life um, and what I've accomplished um, not to say that I've accomplished an immense amount, but uh, in, in my own personal life, what I consider accomplishments um, are generally a result of uh, never enough. I, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm careful to, uh, to really push my narrative on towards other people. I know that for me personally, um, I, I always have to see, you know, what's a little bit further, what's a little bit further. Um, there's this, uh, great quote from, quote from, uh, um, Tom Simpson, great British cyclist from the 1960s and seventies. And, and he had this line, uh, he was, he was, uh, openly, uh, a user of, of beta blockers and bourbon, kind of the, uh, the cocktail of the day for, for the cyclists. And, and he said, if nine pills will kill me, then I'll take eight. And, uh, and not that that's my, my life manifesto, but it's something that I can certainly relate to is like, how, how close can I get to this being too much? And, uh, and then another, um, quote that I'm thinking of is, uh, a former neighbor of mine, uh, that unfortunately I never got to meet, uh, but Hunter Thompson, when he's talking about the line and he's talking about riding his motorcycle along, uh, the Pacific coast highway outside of San Francisco and, and how the only people that really truly know where the line is that you're not supposed to cross are, are no longer with us. 
Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a delicate balance kind of figuring out, uh, what's enough and what's too much. And, and, and also, uh, uh, something that I think a lot of us need to be careful with in, in how we push our, our peers, um, our family, um, people that look up to us, uh, follow us. And then of course, uh, how we push ourselves. What does it feel like for you when you're close to that point? Uh, for me personally, everything gets really, really quiet. Um, that's, uh, I, I got into meditation a few years ago, uh, as because I'm a comp competitive person, my little sister did a, uh, 10 day Vipassana retreat and, and, uh, I don't like that she had something up on me that I didn't have. <laughs> and so of course I had to do a 10 day Vipassana retreat. Um, and then I did a second one after that, uh, and, uh, I just, I, I realized kind of after the first 10 day session that I had been practicing meditation actually for a really long time without really knowing it. Um, and so I kind of, in my own head came up with this idea of, of forced meditation and, uh, for, a lot of the endeavors that I do, um, you know, some of them uh, just kind of as a hobby for fun on my own. Um, but take, for instance, uh, slacklining. You know, you've got the the, the tightrope in between the two trees and, and you walk along back and forth on this tightrope. And this is something that it, it occurred to me was forced meditation. Like you literally can't be thinking about anything else other than your, the mindfulness, uh, of your body, where your body is, what it's doing. You can't think about what's for dinner. You can't think about what that person had said to you earlier in the day. You simply have to be present. Otherwise it, it doesn't work. And, uh, I think the same goes for, uh, a lot of the athletic, uh, pursuits that, that me and my peers and my siblings do. Uh, snowboarding or biking uh, kind of at that high speed level when if you start thinking about anything else um, you're gonna possibly hurt yourself and uh, and that's when it uh, occurred to me that uh, you know we all kind of have these types of meditation that we pursue in our life um, that get the world uh, helps get the world just extremely quiet and, uh, and all of your thoughts and your worries kind of melt away a little bit. Um, for me, it was extremely important to discover uh, meditation, like a sitting, closed eye, mindful meditation, uh, so that I don't have to pursue um, riding my bike as fast as I can or uh, going to find two perfectly spaced trees so I can set up my slack line in between the two of them to quiet my mind. It's such a great observation. And I have two kind of shared experiences um, that relate to that. One is what has been my yoga practice, uh, not so much during COVID because I don't know, I can't quite get myself there through practicing virtually with, with others. Um, and I, I can't seem to do it just on my own, 
but this idea of the standing poses in yoga. Um, and if my mind wanders for, I mean, a split second, right, you fall over and I've had two ski accidents and both of them, I was thinking for just a millisecond, like the smallest possible second, I thought about actually someone else who I was with both times and that both times I have no idea what happened, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, they both resulted in knee surgeries. So, uh, it's, you know, it's a tough way to learn that lesson. And ironically, somehow it's a hard thing to somehow continue to, to keep present, you know, um, to have to learn it more than once is kind of embarrassing, but, um, I have a feeling that, you know, I'm probably not done learning it still. <laughs> like a, I think it's a lifelong practice. Uh, I mean, forever. It really is. Uh, just with yoga, with, with anything, with skiing, like that's, I think for so many of these activities, that's part of the reason that we pursue them is because we keep learning every single time we put on our, our skis or get on our bike. Um, you know, if we stop learning, it, it just kind of uh, takes the fun out of it. That's that plateau that none of us really uh, want. And if we get there, we either choose a different activity or, uh, or we push it a little bit harder. Uh, but I think very few of us actually hang out at that plateau and, and are content with it. I think that's right. And I'm really interested in, in this kind of notion of, of the duality of the experience, you know, so for me and, you know, I'm, I'm learning through your, through your comments you know, for you too, you know, a big part of my efforts, my physical activity are to quiet my mind. Um, I mean, of course, I love being outside and I love, you know, sweating and, you know, being fit and and like the physical nature of it. But for me, so much of it is, you know, to try and to try and quiet my mind. And, um, and for me, that's just what what's worked best. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and this is something that I've, uh, so I've been running, um, long distances, uh, for about 25 years now. And, and, uh, I, I'm constantly confronted with, uh, oh, that's great that you run. I can never run. Like I'm not, I'm not interested in running. And I'm, I think I'm one of the few runners out there that doesn't really push people towards running. Um, that I, it, for me, it's just, it's just one activity um, for I, I'm the one that I use is like, if, if knitting is your thing, um, then, then do it, like do it a hundred percent. If that's how you quiet your mind, um, then that's really what running is for me. It's, it's this way to, to find that, that clean, safe mental space uh, where, where you can just exist and, uh, and be present. Um, so. And, and it is a, a, a lifelong pursuit, which I'm also uh, uh, very aware of. And, and I, I try to impart that into other people as well Is whatever it is that you choose to do. For me, I'm, I consider myself fortunate that I did pick up running when I was 15 years old and, and that I've stuck with it for the past 25 years. Um, but whatever it is that you do, just uh, make sure there's one activity that you just do consistently year after year, decade after decade. It's uh, that's where you not only see your own growth uh, within that activity, but you see your own growth in life. 
And, uh, and I think that's the most important thing. So you've run, I think, on every continent, right? Including Antarctica? I have, yeah. I was uh, very curious about uh, going to Antarctica. I'd heard about a race down there um, called the Race Around the World. It goes through 24 time zones, starts at the South Pole marker, finishes at the South Pole marker. It's about two and a half miles, and uh, it's only open to... Um, people that are working at the South Pole Station. And so uh, I found the the one job that I was supremely qualified for at the South Pole, which was washing dishes and mopping floors, and got a job there for four months in order to, to run a two and a half mile long race. But yeah, I've been on all of the continents and, and uh, run with, with every single type of person. It, it uh, it, it simply, for me, became a way to experience a place. Um, and and the, the activity itself is the same no matter where you go. Uh, it's, it's walking, but faster. And ideally, your two feet leave the ground uh, at, at once, so you're airborne for a second. Um, but the, the environment changes. The, the people change. The 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 physical body my own physical body changes the air changes uh so i've got this base medium thing that i can look at for uh all of these years uh but everything around it seems to change uh just the only thing that i need to do is is to keep doing it and keep paying attention i love that idea of it being like walking only faster <laughs> and, mm. and also this notion of flying. Uh, I, I don't know if we've talked about it, but specifically, but I've talked about it on other podcasts. You know, my daughter is a competitive equestrian. Um, she's a stadium jumper. And what she loves about it is when she's in the air, when she's flying over these jumps and, you know, she's also doing it as fast as she possibly can. Um, so there's that, that, you know, the thrill of that, but, you know, that idea of being in motion off of the earth, um, I think is, is seductive, uh, maybe not for everyone, but, but, but I think so too. And do you, do you think about that as you are in motion? Do you, do you kind of like note it or breathe as you do it or how conscious is, is that in your, while it's happening? Well, uh, so it, that, that's such a funny thing about meditation. And this is something that I, that occurred to me when I was doing my Vipassana retreats is that it's, it's a place that doesn't allow for words or really emotion to exist. Um, the moment you, it's, uh, I've tried to think of, of ways to describe this to people. Like the moment you recognize that you're having a mindful moment and you try to put a word to it, uh, the, the mindful then moment recognizes, yeah, then it's <laughs> yeah, gone. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and that's also when you're doing a dangerous activity, such as riding a horse, um, or, or running up and down Mount Pyramid or whatever it might be. The moment you recognize that this is cool and you're starting to put words to it is the moment that you're no longer a hundred percent present. And that's uh, so true. And then yeah, you put yourself at risk. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So so you just uh 
yeah, so there's, it's, it's a beautiful juxtaposition that, that really, uh, you have to only feel it and, 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 and let it go. And then you can reflect back on it and you say, that was cool. That was fun. But you're never actually going to recreate that moment with, with words or anything like that. So in that moment itself, you just really need to exist. We know quite a few people in common, but we were connected through our mutual friend, Gretchen Blyler, and who's a you know, silver medalist, snowboarder. And I, when I met her, I did a conversation kind of like this with her. Uh, we hadn't really been introduced before. And one of the things that I was really excited to ask her about showed sort of my assumptions about what it is that, that she did, which, you know, for the most part, assumptions are, are never very accurate. But my, my question to her was about how she became physically fearless. And she said, Oh, you know, it's actually the opposite of that. You know, she said, I, I'm not fearless. If I was fearless, then I would do things that were stupid. Um, it's about kind of making peace with fear and being being comfortable with fear. And I wonder how you would answer a question about fear and and how you reckon with that and how you sit with it. And for me, when I think about some of the places that I know that you've been, uh, for example, as you were running across the country, like really far away from from other people or whatever I might think would be a circumstance in which I would feel fear. I don't know if you did or didn't or, or whatnot, but I'm curious how you think about fear and, and um, what it, what it does for you. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. Cause um, so when I set off to run across the country uh, in 2017, um, I, I made this, conscious decision to not be afraid of, of people or animals. And now that you're asking that question, um, I think about that as well. And I'm like, did I truly not have any fear about people or animals? And, and now that I'm thinking about it, like, that's not the case. I definitely had fear for, you know, when you're sleeping in a, out in the middle of the woods in a place that you've never been before. And you hear a, a large rustle in the, in the bushes, like, of course, like fear is part of that. And I'm thinking now in retrospect that, um, I simply took that fear and, uh, committed myself to not doing a whole lot with it, uh, to just sitting with it. Um, cause I, I think that fear is, uh, I mean, it's, it's something that's kept us alive, uh, throughout the course of humanity. It's, it's helped us, uh, survive, uh, for, for generations, for, for thousands, I guess now millions of years. Um, but I do believe that we are, uh, at a, at a point in our society where, uh, it's so easy to, uh, protect ourselves and pad ourselves from, all of the things that we are afraid of, that our sense of fear um, is is uh, yeah, it's 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 no longer necessarily a healthy thing. 
um, because I don't think that we're actually facing our fears all that much anymore. Um, so going back to kind of what I was just saying about going across the country and, and not being afraid, um, I, I appreciate, uh, that you've helped me think about that, uh, a little bit more and that I was afraid, um, but that I chose not to do anything about, uh, the fear when I was in those situations, uh, to not pack up my bag and move to another location to just kind of sit with it for a little bit. And, uh, I think animals are easy to, uh, to suspend our fear over. You just kind of sit there. Um, it's our fellow humans, um, especially in, in the environment that we're living in right now, uh, where fear is being used as, as a tactic to, uh, I think to separate us even more and, and, to uh, yeah, to, to, to help control the narrative. So, um, paying attention to, and, and sitting with fear, I think is, has been, uh, probably one of my biggest life lessons. Thank you for that answer. I think those are very um, tangible and quantifiable fears, right? When when Rich Roll was was on his podcast, uh, he he was talking about how he sleeps outside in a tent, and and I was saying that you know I would love to do that, but that I'm actually afraid of animals, <laughs> like mm-hmm. wild animals, right? Like so, living in Aspen, you know, I just even when the weather's perfect, I just don't feel comfortable like sleeping outside in my yard. You know, it's not that I don't go camping, but somehow, you know, when I'm camping, I'm less concerned about wildlife, but I just didn't feel comfortable like sleeping in a tent in my yard. But um, (laughs) so they're just different, I guess, different ways of of addressing um, the things that we don't know, right? Like that's, I think that's the essence of it. You know, um, if you're afraid of something that you do know or or have experienced, then maybe it's, it's like more of a rational fear that there there can be strategies to address. But I guess for me, it's some of it is like a, a fear of an unknown, you know, like the, like the what if, um, and, and that's, you know, maybe even more destructive because it can be an, an inhibitor. Um, cause there is no way to, to control the what ifs. Totally. I think you should camp outside tonight in your house. <laughs> <laughs> I might do that. Yeah. <laughs> I might do that. Mm. I almost did it the other night. I almost slept on the trampoline, you know, because I thought that was I thought that was a good um kind of happy medium, you know, like outside totally. but not on the ground. So totally Coy- coyotes <laughs> couldn't possibly get on top of the trampoline. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we know better. Yeah. Uh, so you made reference to people and and you have a, a new film coming out where you are addressing this idea of America. And, you know, you say at the start of it that you had spent more time in the UK than in Kansas, for example. Can, can you tell us a story of, of someone that you met and maybe how your perspective changed um, based on your first impression and then your lasting impression? Yeah. So, I mean, when I started running out uh, across the country in 2017, like part, part of my goals was to just kind of suspend stereotypes that I have of certain people around the country. Um, I, I don't need to hide 
the fact that I'm I'm pretty anti-Trump, uh, that I'm much more on the left-leaning side of things. Uh, this is uh, something that I I consider pretty well ingrained in me. But uh, you know, I started this run across the country and and just kind of tried to suspend that a little bit. And what uh, occurred to me is, is that, uh, you know, going through so many places around the country and talking to people is that, uh, you know, my, my left leaning is so much a product of, of how I grew up and where I grew up. I grew up in, in Aspen, Colorado. Um, it's, it's a pretty liberal, uh, little area and, and, uh, exposed to a lot of, uh, kind of more liberal ideas. Um, but if you you take me and you put me in in Alabama uh, or Georgia, you know a lot of these places, uh, farm country out in the middle of Kansas, um, it really didn't take that much of a stretch of an imagination for me to understand uh, that I could very easily uh, change my entire political belief and and uh, agenda. Um, so. In saying all of that, it, it, I, I I don't know that I went into my trip with, um, I, I, I did try to suspend those preconceived notions that I had for people. But even with that said, I was just simply blown away, um, primarily in the South, um, but then going into the Great Plains as well. Uh, the amount of generosity that I experienced from my my fellow Americans, my, my fellow human beings. Um, from people that literally just took one look at me and, uh, and handed me money or handed me food or, or just asked me if I have everything that I need, uh, or just sat and talked to me, which was oftentimes what I wanted more than anything else. Um, and, um, I'm thinking in particular, uh, uh, about this town and, in uh, Kansas, Stafford, Kansas was the name of the town. I had put in, uh, I think, a 40 or 45 mile day uh, that day and arrived in this town. And I had gotten into this bar where I was hoping to devour um, a couple hamburgers and, and just sit there and, and relax and, and then figure out where I was going to sleep that night afterwards because I had no idea. I'd, I'd been spending a lot of nights out in the rain. And, uh, I approached the bar and, and, uh, and talked to the bartender and like, is the, is the bar still open here? Is, are you guys still serving food? And the bartender took one look at me and, and, and told me that she'd go fire up the, the fryer and, and cook me whatever I want. She knew I needed, uh, some food and was happy to provide it and brought out uh, a couple hamburgers, a couple beers. And I just sat there for a little while while everybody uh, at the bar was uh, laughing and joking them about their days uh, and, and telling stories and whatnot. And, and finally the bartender, after I finished my burger uh, came over and she's like, so what are you doing anyway? And I said, well, I'm, I'm running across the country. Um, she said, uh, do you, do you want to tell us about it? And I said, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. And, she went over to everybody at the bar and told them to shut up. And she went over to the jukebox and turned the jukebox off and asked me to come over to the bar and, and just uh, sit with them and talk to them. And I sat there for a couple hours with these people. Um, and then at the end of our meal, uh, she told me that 
she was paying for the meal and and then the owner of the bar came over and he said, and I'm buying you a hotel room for tonight. It's just a couple blocks away and there's a breakfast spot right next to it. And, uh, I'm buying your breakfast there in the morning. Uh, just remember Stafford, Kansas. And, uh, I, I assure you, I'll never forget Stafford, Kansas, but it was, uh, it was stuff like that just constantly throughout my trip where it's, uh, um, it was just amazing the the amount of generosity that people put out there for for someone um, who is putting themselves out there and 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 I can pretty much guarantee that uh, I I didn't agree on most topics on a political agenda with uh, pretty much everybody in that bar, um, but I was just reminded again. Um, as I had been several times during my run, um, just that it's uh, our politics are actually such a small part of who we are on the grand scheme of things. Um, I think it's about five or ten percent of who we are, and then that ninety percent is is love and understanding and wanting to share a laugh and a beer and and uh, and just be uh, with kind fellow human beings. Um, so that's uh, yeah, that was my my big takeaway, it was, uh, I, I experienced it just a couple days into the trip and, and I continued to, to experience it for the next five months going across the country. And, um, just like meditation, uh, I think that it's something that we have to work on constantly, consistently on a day-to-day basis, um, to, to remind ourselves that, uh, us human beings are much more similar than we are different. And, uh, and to keep that close to our hearts. We're recording just on audio, not with video, so you can't see, and certainly the listener can't, but I was just so moved by that story. Um, As I was listening to you tell it, you know, my eyes kind of welled up and, you know, the tears were sort of running down my face because... First of all, you're an amazing storyteller um, and you're able to to share in a way that that I think brings people together and and to a place uh, even if they haven't ever been there. And I think that inspiration is is part of how then people are relating to you because, you know, the idea of the authentic is, is maybe overstated at this point, but it's, but it's true. Um, you know, having that kind of authentic experience. And I wonder as they quieted that space for you and you had the, you had their attention, what did you tell them? What did you tell them about your trip and about what you were doing? No, um, I probably told him about how many rainstorms I'd slept out in, uh, up until that point. Uh, I'm not totally sure. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it just kind of, uh, I mean, I, we were talking earlier about how I consider it a luxury to, to suffer, um, to experience suffering and, and, uh, in taking that thread a little bit further, um, I just consider it, uh, you know, for me in particular to be able to, to do an adventure like I did to run across the country. Um, 
I really feel that I'm doing that not just for myself, but for uh, a much larger, um, I'm hesitant to say audience, um, but I'm, I'm doing it for a lot of people. I'm not doing it just for myself. Um, I know that taking five months off from work, uh, from your family, um, and setting out on foot, it's just not in, in most people's wheelhouse. Um, and so I feel like when you do go into a bar or you, you, uh, after the run, you've got, uh, anybody that wants to listen to and hear about your trip. Um, I, I almost feel like it's my duty to, to tell them about it and, and, uh, give them not just the, the stories that they want to hear, but, but also giving them stories that they don't want to hear, just giving them stories that challenge them. You know, that's, that's the reason that, that you do something like that. If you go out and fulfill every expectation, I, I kind of think that you're left a little bit disappointed. Uh, it's when your expectations are challenged uh, and, and they challenge uh, the expectations of others. That's, that's how our, our growth happens. You've come up with a bunch of like super interesting projects. One was running every street in San Francisco, right? And then you have this great photographic project where you took photographs of, of what you found, um, the things that, you know, really were discarded by humanity. Um, you have this project that we've discussed and is rolling around in my head and I don't know, want to talk with you about it a little more offline, the, the hundred mile, you know, run, hut, run project. How do you come up with these ideas? And yeah, what's, what's your creative prods? What's your creative process like? Gosh. Um, well, I, <laughs> part of it, I, I tell people is that I look for the URL online and if it's not taken, then I, then it seems like it's my kind of idea. So I've got this, uh, uh, as you mentioned, the hot run hut, um, that com was available. Busrunbus.com was available. So I, I sort of, uh, jokingly build the trips around, uh, the title of a, of a project. Uh, every single street was available. So I grabbed that one. Um, so that's only sort of jokingly, but, uh, I, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I guess I think back to like, I I've always done this, um, even like as far back as I can remember second or third grade, I think there was show and tell and people would bring in a toy and show it off in front of the class. And I'm like, I want my show and tell to be better than other people's show and tell, or if not better, <laughs> at least different. And so I brought in the bike that I had uh, uh, been given a year earlier and that I'd been practicing on. And I did this weird, like acrobat thing out in the parking lot. I, I convinced the teacher to let us all go out into the parking lot. And I think my I would ride with standing on the, the top tube of the bike or on the seat of the bike and do circles around, you know, <laughs> nothing super impressive, but, uh, it was, it was certainly different than, than, uh, than what my classmates were doing at the time. Um, so with that said, uh, you know, I, I've been running for, for 25 years now. I had 
uh, a bit of success in a lot of the races that I did. Some of the the shorter ones, uh, uphill and downhill races, five to 10 miles. And then I switched to ultra races and, and I had a little bit less success, but I did have some success there. Um, but then it's just, you, you get to your mid thirties, uh, late thirties as an athlete. And you start looking at like, what have I done? What can I still do? Um, and what hasn't been done in this world of, of running yet. And that's kind of where I come up with the, these ideas, like running to me doesn't have to be always competitive. It doesn't have to be about time, uh, distance, uh, where you finish in relation to your competition or whatever it might be. Um, like how, uh, how can I look at this, this, this endeavor, this sport and think of it differently than, than my, than my, than my peers have at this point. Um, and that's, you know, for running all of the streets in San Francisco, uh, a large part of that is like, I, I wanted a few different things. I wanted to get to know a city as well as I felt like I had gotten to know the country. Um, I wanted to, frankly, I wanted to stay somewhat close to home so I could be close to my, uh, my wife. Um, and, uh, and, and I wanted it to, to feel like, uh, an endeavor on the Appalachian trail or on the Pacific crest trail, something that my peers, uh, do, um, for, for time, uh, to try and break a record. Um, but, but take that idea and, and twist it a little bit and, and see, uh, rather than getting to know the Appalachians as well as you might going along the spine for one or two or three months, um, how can you get to know a city in that same way? And I've, I've found that just by putting up a, a few simple parameters for, for projects that I'm working on, uh, that you can really take this this endeavor of of one foot in front of the other and turn it into so much more and turn it into just something really really meaningful uh, uh to me and and hopefully to to people that i come across out there is there a way to think about what you're doing as a conceptual art project um i yeah this is uh See, I've, I've done art uh, uh, in some form or, or another for, for a long time. I studied photography in college. Um, I, I, did, I took some writing classes. I love writing. Um, and the idea of calling myself an artist for, for so many years, uh, and I don't doubt that... Um, like almost every single artist goes through this uh, same bit of turmoil. Like, am I an artist? Am, am I doing art? Is this art? <laughs> and uh, so the idea of calling what I do art or conceptual art um, was really hard for me to swallow um, almost until a friend of mine who's uh, a successful artist in San Francisco, um, he says, Ricky, you're like a, you're a conceptual runner. And, and that's the title that he gave me rather than a conceptual artist, <laughs> but a conceptual runner. 
And somehow like an artist calling, like giving me that title, uh, was like he may he may as well have put a badge on me that that said like you're doing it like you're you're thinking you're finally thinking outside the box um so yeah i don't know does that answer your question it's something that i still kind of struggle with um but i really love the idea of um i i came across after i ran across the country and i think it was after i did my streets project as well i came across this artist this english artist uh, Hamish Fulton, um, who's a walking artist and he doesn't create anything during his walks. He creates everything after the walk. He believes that the, the walk itself is, is, uh, is so pure, um, that you can't take anything from it or add anything to it to, to improve it. Um, you can only kind of communicate the art, uh, the feeling of it afterwards. And so I just started uh, reading a lot of his writings and, and looking at all of his walks and, and just kind of realizing that like, yeah, you can, this, you can be an artist and, and do this sort of thing. Um, you have to really uh, stretch your mind, um, which, which is what artists do um, in order to, to really uh, connect all the dots. But, uh, but yeah, so I'll, I'll take it and I'll, I'll, uh, the conceptual runner. I don't know if I'll go conceptual artist yet, but I'll be the conceptual runner. There's also an artist. I don't know if we talked about this before, but her name is Helen Mira and she has done a series of these walks and they're walks with a half smile. So it comes from the Buddhist notion of meditation where a half smile isn't, you know, a full smile and it's not a non-smile, it's a half smile. So Mm. it's about that balance. And the idea of, you know, walking with a half smile means that you have sort of a fully present experience of, you know, moving your body through space, but also being aware, not just of how your feet are connecting to the earth, but also, you know, what you're doing with your face. And then of course, how your mouth is positioned has such an impact on your mind and, and what your mind is doing or, or not doing. And she does these projects where she'll gather people. I mean, if anyone else wants to, you know, she has an announced kind of uh, meeting point and, and a start time. And then she talks about this idea of the half smile and then people go off on their own um, walking and, you know, meditating and, and being and thinking or not thinking. And then at the end, you know, people will come together for a a shared meal. And I think there's an interesting affinity, you know, between what you're doing and she's doing and what Hamish Fulton is doing. And I'm just curious about, about having those, um, associations out there. Well, it's funny. So I'm, I'm just reminded. Uh, so the other day I went out for a run. Um, and in case people are listening to this uh, years down the road, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. Um, and people on the trails, uh, I find uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, were very, very kind. Um, like we're all in this together. Um, good day to you. Good day to you. And now that we're five or six months into it we're still into it uh we don't know how long it's going to end like um we 
just just treating our fellow humans um, is more important. Uh, treating them well is is more important than ever. Uh, but doing so is actually becoming more of a challenge. Uh, just as you know, you can't see people's half smile underneath their uh, their face mask. And so I was out for a run the other day, and and I uh, I say hi to every single person uh, that I come across on the trail. And, uh, and Hey, how you doing? And, and 90% of the time I'm like, Hey, good afternoon. Um, but a couple times on this run, two or three times on this run, uh, no, the, the person that I said hi to didn't respond. They, they looked into the trees, they cover their mouth with their mask. And I said, Oh, okay, whatever. That's too bad. And finally, like towards the end of the run, I said hi to this, uh, this woman on the trail and she didn't say hi back. And, and, and it really got to me. So I said, hi again. Um, but certainly much more aggressively I said, hi. And she replied to me, uh, I am not obligated to say hi back to you. And <laughs> it was such a, I mean, it, so we can pause and think about this for, for a little bit and like, man, what a jerk that person is. But the reality is, is that it was me trying to better somebody's day and then expecting them to better my day in return. And when I didn't get that response, I, I responded uh, snidely. And she reminded me that that's not her obligation. Um, and so that, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I don't know if this really answers the question that you asked, but it's just uh, like everything else, it's a constant reminder that, this is a work in progress that we're in and some days are much more challenging than others. And, uh, to the extent of, of just wanting, um, a high back from somebody to remind yourself that, uh, that that's actually on you, uh, to maintain your own half smile and, uh, and can do and, uh, to, to carry on on your path. I think that's right, but I also want to counter that a little bit too, because of course she's not obligated. She's not obligated to do for you anything that she doesn't want to do, of course, right? But as you were describing what you needed when you were going across the country, one of the things you said that you often needed more than anything was conversation, right? Because I think one of the, we're of course in, in a pandemic related to the coronavirus right now, you know, but there are other like epidemics, if not pandemics, right? And, and one of those is, is loneliness. I mean, even before the pandemic, that was, you know, probably like such a significant um, health concern, right? Particularly in the United States, there are so many people living on their own, and and it, you know it's really like loneliness is a huge health hazard, and you know suicide is like a huge health risk, and and oftentimes all that people really need is is to be seen, you know, and to be acknowledged, and so you know maybe she didn't need to like say hi back, but but you know like turning in, in such fear, you know, there was an opportunity to also think like, well, if you were actually pushing the point, 
maybe you weren't being a jerk, you know, maybe you were just like really in need. And if we see another human in need, you know, do we have some kind of obligation, you know, to, to help? Yeah. And this is, um, I, I so often resort to this, um, this, this way of thinking, uh, to, to actually just thinking of human beings as animals, um, generally as dogs, uh, men, women, children, uh, older people, and, you know, how, when say in that instance, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're petting a dog and, and the dog snaps at you, like, do you, do you blame that dog? Like you don't really, like, you just don't know what's going on in that dog's, in that dog's mind, how it was brought up. And, and, and you just, you just have to feel empathy for them. And, to and, and if, if, uh, the, the dog bites you, um, to maybe try a different approach, uh, going in the next time. For sure. Yeah. So maybe instead of saying hi, you can just wave. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And yeah, who knows? Maybe that's actually all she needed, um, was, uh, someone to say hi to her and not to drive it home. <laughs> Thank you for sitting in your bus um, on your meditation <laughs> cushion talking with me today. I really am, am grateful. I love, I love these conversations. I think they're super meaningful. Heidi, it's a real pleasure. And uh, I truly look forward to, to one of these days being able to share the trails with you and, and uh, continuing this conversation. Thanks so much, Ricky. Be well. Thank you. Okay, bye. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Simon Illa. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. Blake Migden assists with social media content editing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.